everyone, and welcome back to the Final Girl on 6th Avenue podcast. My name is Carolyn Smith-Hilmer, and you are listening to this final episode of this series. Um, wow, I am truly so thrilled to be giving you this um, the final top 10 of our top 100 movie countdown I don't foresee myself doing another one of these for quite some time. This was definitely a lot harder than I thought it would be. Thank you if you have stuck around this long. It truly means the world to me. And um, yeah, I don't think that anything else really needs to be said because I'm sure that much like myself, all of you listeners out there are ready to get the top 10 over with too. Um, I think I definitely have some maybe different tastes than a lot of people and some different opinions. And um, I also just think it's interesting to see where people land if they had to rank their top 100 and particularly probably their top 50. Um, Everybody's different. But today we are going to start with number 10. And I think what we'll do for these top 10 is we'll do a little bit more of a deep dive into plot and kind of summary of the movie rather than just like a simple sentence like I've been doing. Um, I actually took the time, went through each of these films and really, you know, typed out a real true summary for you all. So I think that will be a little bit more interesting. So starting with number 10, Saw. 2004 release, written and directed by James Wan, starring Kiri Elwes, Danny Glover, Monica Potter, Ken Leung, 103-minute runtime. Adam is a photographer, and Adam wakes up in the most horrifically disgusting, like, bathroom. It's like the bathroom of every nightmare you've ever had. Worst gas station bathroom you've ever been in, but, like, imagine if you saw that bathroom, right? But there was also like a bathtub in there and it was also big enough for like, I don't know, 20 people to fit in there. And it was moldy, disgusting. It looked like people get murdered and chopped up in there all the time. That's what we're dealing with. But Adam is chained by his ankle to a pipe. And luckily for Adam, he's actually not alone in this bathroom. He's joined by a Dr. Gordon who's also chained to a pipe across the room in between the two of them there's a corpse in the middle of the room and this corpse has a revolver and a tape player like a cassette player so each of them find a tape in their pockets and are able to get the tape player so they listen to their tapes and adam's tape is really nice and like encourages him to get out of the room but dr gordon's tape tells him to kill adam by 6 p.m or his wife and daughter get the kibosh so there's always two sides to every story, right? Um, <laughs> there is a bag with two saws in it, um, like a hacksaw, in the toilet in this restroom. So well, they know that there's an option there, um, but they quickly try to saw through the chains that they're bound by, except, you know, Adam does it and his saw breaks from rubbing it against, like, metal chains obviously so dr gordon's like oh shit man i don't think these are for the chains i'm pretty sure these are for our feet 
We're going to have to saw our own feet off. You're going to have to shed a few pounds of flesh to get out of this one. So Dr. Gordon actually identifies the corpse that's in between him and Adam in the room as a man named Jigsaw because Dr. Gordon was actually once a suspect in one of Jigsaw's little murder games. So he knows and tells Adam all about the fact that Jigsaw is this guy. He tests his victim through a series of traps. He calls these traps games. They're always like life or death. You know, shit happens basically during these games. And um, it doesn't sound like any game like I would ever want to play. And unfortunately you don't get paid to play these games. So I mean, that lessens my interest obviously way more. And about a year and a half before this, Dr. Gordon had been discussing um, the treatment plan of one of his cancer patients who was terminally ill. And um, this patient's name is John Kramer. And he was going through this treatment plan when he was interrogated by two detectives who I'll call, I'll just refer to them as dumbass one and dumbass two because they don't help their case at all. And in fact, they make no progress hardly at all on this. So, um, the detectives tell Dr. Gordon like, Hey, you know, your little pen light that you use, um, I actually found it at the scene of one of Jigsaw's games that had ended. Um, and Dr. Gordon had an alibi. He agreed to review a testimony with the detectives from a woman named Amanda. And, uh, Amanda is a former heroin addict and she's actually the only known survivor of one of Jigsaw's games. And now she's not in all the Saw movies, but she is in a lot of them. And for those of you who like love the first one and never made it past the first one, she goes on to be kind of his like assistant, Jigsaw's assistant. She works with him on like creating the, the games and finding the people and like orchestrating everything for him because he is terminally ill. I mean, he, he is a cancer patient. So they review the testimony of Amanda and during her testimony, she explains that she had to dig a key out of her dead husband's body to unlock a bear trap that was on her head. And she basically had like, I think it was like a minute to do it. So behind the scenes where all this is happening, Dr. Gordon's wife and daughter are both being held captive at their house while their captor is um, actually able to watch the disgusting, horrible bathroom on the live feed, like on a hidden camera. And so he's able to see what's going on. And one of the detectives is hanging out outside of Dr. Gordon's house because, well, he's alone, by the way, I should say, because um, his partner, dumbass two, um was killed accidentally in some crossfire engagement during like a raid on a warehouse of one of Jigsaw's games. So I'm not trying to say fuck around and find out, but he, he kind of fucked around and he certainly found out. So anyway, the other detective is still is super involved in this. He got let go after his partner got shot and he's so overly convinced that Dr. Gordon is, like, is actually the killer. So he's, like, 
waiting outside, I guess, to somehow, like, try to prove that Dr. Gordon's in there trying to kill his wife and kid. And at gunpoint, with the captor, Dr. Gordon's wife calls him and tells him not to believe anything that Adam says, but Adam explains that he was paid by the detective to spy on him and tells him, hey, I know, Dr. Gordon, you've been having an affair with one of your medical students, like, Shit sucks. I don't know why you would do that. Blah, blah, blah. Wife and daughter escape their captor um, at the stroke of 6 p.m., which is when Dr. Gordon was supposed to have killed Adam by. So now we're in a bit of a time crunch here. Um, The detective saves them as they run down the street. And in order to get out, Dr. Gordon saws off his own foot and shoots Adam with the revolver that was in the room. The captor of the wife and daughter was actually a hospital orderly that knows Dr. Gordon, and he comes into the bathroom with the intention of killing Dr. Gordon, but Adam, having survived his gunshot wound, actually bludgeons the orderly to death with a toilet seat from the bathroom. In the orderly's pocket, Adam finds another tape that reveals that He was only doing what he was told in order to obtain an antidote for a slow-acting poison that he has running through his body. So, I mean, he was probably going to die anyway. I'm not sure which death would have been any better. Meanwhile, this is all going on. Dead body corpse in the middle of the room stands up. Okay, he's just been pretending to be dead the whole time. Stands up, and we learn that that is actually John Kramer a.k.a. Jigsaw, who tells Adam that the key to his ankle chain was actually in the toilet the whole time. And Adam had flushed the toilet and drained all the water. So the key, like, he can't get it anymore. It went down the drain, so. (sighs) Things just aren't looking good for Adam. And they never were. But, um, John Kramer is like, hey, mercy killing. You know, you didn't make it out. I'm not going to leave you here to rot. So, you know, that was super nice of him. And so he shocks Adam with some electricity through the metal chain that's attached to his leg and just leaves him there. And he closes the door to the bathroom and that's, that's all we got. And, um, this is a pretty gory movie. I'm not sure there's a lot of like deeper meaning here that we can really learn from, but like this movie is just genius. Like it's so genius the first time I saw this and he stood up off the bathroom floor, I thought, what the fuck have I been doing this whole entire time that I never saw this coming? And John Kramer is a man that is so moved by his newfound appreciation for life, you know, having been a terminally ill cancer patient and um, coming into a, a form of remission that he's actually willing to do anything and everything to stay alive. And this outlook means so much to him that he finds people in the world that he knows for certain do not share this or do not appreciate what they have. Like Dr. Gordon, who is cheating on his beautiful wife and, you know, in turn harming his daughter and placing them in danger. Like just crazy stuff. And John Kramer is like, you know, I know that these are some highly questionable means by which I'm trying to teach you guys these lessons, but if you come in and you fight for your life the way that I fought for mine, 
maybe you'll learn to appreciate it and see that life's not so bad. So I think all this is to say that some people really do mean well, but they just can't seem to find a way to communicate their feelings appropriately or in a healthy way. Number nine, Nightmare on Elm Street, 1984 release, written and directed by Wes Craven, starring John Saxon, Ronnie Blakely, Heather Langenkamp, Amanda Weiss, Johnny Depp, Robert England, Amanda Weiss, 91 minute runtime. We all know who comes from this, right? We have Freddy Krueger, who definitely one of my favorites. I don't, can't speak for everybody. Um, I know that that's a your favorite slasher character, um, slasher villain, is probably one of the most highly debated um, things that uh, in the horror community. But, I mean, I think Freddy is, is probably mine. I think so. Especially as the films go on and he gets more and more creative and funny. I mean, how can you just not love the guy? So Tina has a nightmare. And in her nightmare, there's a disfigured man who I'm just going to refer to as Freddy because we all know what the fuck he looks like. Freddy has gloves and the gloves um, where the fingers are have knives in them and he goes around in dreams and attacks people. So Tina has a dream. She finds him in a boiler room. He attacks her and she wakes up from her dream. But her mom is like, yo, Tina, you got slash marks in your nightgown. So what can you do about that? Um, but best friends, there's three of them. We got Tina, Nancy, Glenn. They are talking at school all about the fact that they actually all had the same dream. And they're like, weird, we should spend the night together at Tina's house when her mom goes out of town. But then Tina's boyfriend, Rod, interrupts their fun little sleepover and Tina goes to bed. And she has the same dream again, which wakes Rod up in the middle of the night, who sees Tina being thrashed around and slashed and ultimately murdered. And Nancy's daddy is a cop, so he arrests Rod for the murder of his daughter. And, um, or sorry, for the murder of Tina, excuse me. Uh, Nancy's still good. So Nancy goes back to school and dreams during class about Freddie. Um, and she wakes up from this dream with a burn mark on her arm. Cause in her dream, she was like actually pushed into a boiler. So she has a burn mark on her arm. She goes to see Rod at the police station and Rod finally gets a, gets Nancy basically to just like believe he just convinces her, which is not really a bad thing. Cause this is the truth. But, um, he gets Nancy to believe that he also has dreams about Freddy Krueger and that, Freddie is actually the one who's responsible for Tina's death, not Rod. So Nancy goes home. She takes a bath. This is probably one of the greatest scenes of any horror movie ever. And she's almost drowned in the tub. You know, there's this beautiful scene where she is in the bathtub. Her legs are kind of spread and she's relaxed. And we all we see coming up are just the knives and then part of the hand. Like, just the best scene horrifying but so good and um she's almost drowned by him so she's like okay i'm not going to sleep anymore i'm gonna use caffeine to stay awake i'm gonna invite glenn over and glenn is gonna watch me while i sleep so she ends up falling asleep for a little while and has another dream anyway where freddie is about to kill rod but then decides oh look nancy's here so he 
turns his attention to Nancy. Nancy runs away, and when she wakes up, um, she wakes up because her alarm goes off. Uh, but she does find out that Freddy actually d- did kill Rod anyway, and he staged it as a suicide by wrapping bed sheets around his neck in his cell at the jail. So Nancy's parents are like, okay, something's going on with our kid. We need to get her some help. This is not going well. And um, Nancy's like, mom, dad, I know we're at Rod's funeral right now, but I keep having these dreams and all these dreams are happening. And, you know, the guy in my dream is the one who killed Rod. And her parents are like, whoa, we got to take her to a sleep clinic because this is just not getting any better. So she goes to the sleep clinic. And when she's there, she's actually able to pull a fedora out of her dream into real life. And uh, this is Freddy's hat. It's his fedora. And it actually has his name on the brim. So she goes home. Nancy's mom barricades the house. She tells Nancy, Freddy was responsible for the murders of like 20 kids. And um, he got off on a legal technicality. And he was actually burned alive by the kid's parents as an act of revenge. Which like, okay, I get it. So Glenn falls asleep and is murdered by Freddy. And um, the reason that this sucks so bad is because Nancy actually calls Glenn's house, but um, Glenn's dad like doesn't let her talk to Glenn. So she can't even warn him. So that was really sad. So Nancy finally is like, I've had enough. I'm going to take some serious action. Her cop dad goes over to Glenn's house to investigate that death. And she says, okay, dad, Come home in the next 20 minutes. Break in the house. Come through the door. So she rigs the house with all these booby traps and she falls asleep to lure Freddy in from the dream world and try to bring him into the real world since it worked with the hat. And it actually works so well at first that she gets Freddy trapped in the basement and goes to the front door for help. And by the time the police get there, though, Freddy's actually gone from the basement And he's upstairs now with a pillow over Nancy's mom's face. So the next morning, it's bright, it's sunny. Nancy goes outside. All of her friends are alive. Her family's alive. She gets in the car with Glenn to go to school. And she looks back at the house to see Freddie standing behind her mom in the window. And that is the end of that. I think what I like best about this movie is it's kind of nice to see... um, a version in which there are like a slasher where there are parents around, like they are in the movie, they're like involved, but at the same time, they're not so involved um, because they're not actually helpful in any way. So the parents are always absent. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, scream um, Sydney's dad. He's like around, but not really. Um, So these kids kind of have to learn to do all these things on their own. And I think that's just kind of a nice change of pace versus like, I don't know, Friday the 13th when Mrs. Voorhees is running rampant um, on the campgrounds and it's literally just kids and there's no parents at all. There's no structure or anything. So it's kind of even more scary to see a world in which like this could happen to anybody and it could happen when your parents are home. It can happen when they're not home. It can happen in your bathtub. It can happen when you go to sleep. Any number of things. Moving right along to number eight. Raw. 
Raw is a 2016 uh, release French movie, 99 minute runtime. It is written and directed by Julia Ducournau and starring Garrett Marillier, Ella Rumpf, and Laurent Lucas. And I've talked a little bit about, I mean, I've talked about it before. I have an episode on it. Um, but I, I talked briefly in that episode, I should say, about how horrifying I thought this movie was. And um, <laughs> on, like, the Wikipedia page, it's advertised as a, or categorized as a coming-of-age horror movie. And, I mean, I think that's certainly true. But, wow. Um, I'm glad my coming-of-age experience wasn't anything like this, I should say. So... We have Justine, our main character, Justine, and her entire family are veterinarians. Her parents are vets. Her older sister is at vet school right now. And Justine's parents are taking Justine to this vet school right now. Like, they're on a road trip. They're heading there. And Justine is vegetarian. She grew up vegetarian. And, um... (sighs) when When they're on the way, like, they're kind of already setting the tone... And her parents are like, hey, look out the window. Like, this is where the hospital is. And this is where the morgue is. And, um, you know, showing her things that she probably doesn't really need. I mean, she should know where the hospital is. Everybody should know where the hospital is, the closest one is. But other than that, it's kind of like, I don't know if she really needs to know all that stuff. So they, um, they wait for her sister, older sister, Alexia, to come down. Alexia never comes. So they're like, all right, whatever. Bye, love you, have a good time. And um, I don't know if this is common in vet school, but I mean, I know that like when you are um, a part of like a master's program or anything like higher education, like a doctor, you are, um, it's like ceremoniously referred to as a fraternity. So like at my graduation, I would have only been able to receive my hood for my master's program from somebody else that already has a hood. So it's kind of like a small initiation thing, but those are cool. The ones in this movie are just not cool at all. So they have them do a lineup in the middle of the night. All the upperclassmen are like, get the fuck out of your bed. Come on. We're going to scare the shit out of you. Basically they throw all the beds out the window. So these underclassmen have no beds. And, um, They actually end up taking them somewhere fun. Like, they line up in a hallway, they have their pajamas and underwear on, and then they go to, like, a warehouse party. So, um, I mean, that part was probably pretty fun. So, anyway, Justine is, like, walking around the party. She's overwhelmed. She sees people smoking, drinking, making out. It's kind of crazy. And um, she kind of tries to cling on to her roommate, Adrian, who's a gay man. And Adrian has other plans. He's already making out with somebody else. So, she's like, whatever. I'll just walk around. She ends up finding her sister, Alexia. Where the fuck was she the whole time? And she's drunk off her ass, just dancing on a table. And when she finally gets Alexia's attention, Alexia climbs down from the table. She tries not to throw up. And she's like, hey, let's go get some fresh air with my dog. Um, The dog's name is Quickie. The dog's not very fast from what I remember. So I'm not really sure why it's named that. But that's neither here nor there. And um, they end up going to a room that looks like a storage closet. I don't really think the stuff in there should be stored together, um, but I'm not really like a lab tech, so it's not really for me, but 
Um, anyway, at this point, Justine is like, hey, why is all this hazing stuff happening? Like, I'm not loving all this. And Alexi is like, it's okay. Let me show you some pictures on the walls of all the other, um, like, classes that came before us. And they actually find one of uh, that involves their parents. Like, both of their parents were in this class photo that they're looking at. And so Alexia is kind of like, hey. It's okay. It can't be that bad. Our parents were able to do it. And Justine's like, cool, but I'm really tired, so I'm just going to go to sleep. So Alexia's like, actually, you can't go to sleep. You have to stay here because I'm an upperclassman and I tell you what to do. So they stay at the party. At sunrise, Justine is literally crawling back to her room and she gets to rest for like an hour or two. And we see um, Alexia... And all the upperclassmen and then Justine and all of her underclassmen in like a quad. And they're going to be taking a white coat photo. And basically it's just like the ceremony when you get your coat, you take a photo. It'll be the same type of picture of the one that they looked at of their parents. And they, um, they line up for the picture and Justine looks at her coat. She hears like something wet and it's a drop of blood and she looks up. And, um, just gallons and buckets of red, beet red blood are just pouring all over, all over them. It's horrible. It's disgusting. And then immediately they have to line up to take their first quote unquote communion, which is a raw rabbit kidney followed by a shot of liquor. And Justine is like, I'm sorry, I actually can't eat this. I'm vegetarian. You can ask my sister Alexia. She's vegetarian too. We all are. And Alexia is like, I'm not vegetarian. And she puts her hand in the jar and eats a liver, or like a kidney. And she's like, oh, weird. Okay. So Justine ends up taking one because she's like, I guess if my sister can do it, I can do it. But it's not so fun in games because Justine... Wakes up in the middle of the night with, like, this rash all over her body. Her stomach hurts really bad. She goes to the doctor. The doctor's like, you probably have food poisoning because you don't eat meat and you're eating meat now. And um, she kind of insinuates that, like, the rash is from a hazing incident. And um, she gets a, a cream to take home and apply regularly, whatever. So... She goes back to, you know, her dorm and class and um, she gets in a tiny fight with her sister Alexia over the fact that she's like, why the fuck did you make me eat that stupid rabbit kidney? Now look at me, I have a rash. But I mean, Alexia just doesn't care. She just wants her sister to be tough and not embarrass her and X, Y, Z. So she's like, whatever. Um, The next day though, she, Justine, goes to lunch and the cafeteria and she puts vegetables on her cafeteria plate, but then like tries to steal a hamburger patty by putting it in her coat and she gets caught cause she's trying to steal it. So Adrian, her roommate is like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like I didn't realize that you were that hungry. Let me take you out for dinner. I really had no idea that you couldn't either afford to eat or, you know, you were so hungry. I would have happily paid for you to have extra food. So they go out and, um, They go to a gas station. They eat what looks like a dank kebab. Looks so good. The next day, Justine, she'd been eating a lot. Okay. She'd been eating a lot, a lot. Her roommate, Adrian, finds her 
break of dawn, plates, wrappers all over the kitchen. They have a mini fridge. He's like, are you okay? Are you hungry? She says she woke up to eat breakfast, like cereal. Like she says she woke up to eat cereal, but she had been digging through the fridge. Um, she says for milk, but she was digging for anything. And she literally just takes raw chicken breast and just starts eating it. And she's so ashamed at how she's feeling and these cravings she has for meat. This all culminates to the most horrific part of the whole movie, which is when she, um, you know, she, she's upset by this and she goes and she like wants to hang out with her sister. So she hangs out with Alexia. They get drunk. Alexia decides it's a great idea to give Justine, the Virgin, a bikini wax. It's her first one. Um, she only wants to do a Brazilian. She doesn't want to get rid of everything. So Alexia does one side. Justine cries because it actually hurts so incredibly badly. So then Alexia tells her, okay, well, you have to do the other side because otherwise it's just going to look uneven and weird. And like, I'm not going to let you walk around like that because who wants to see that? So she tries to pull the wax off the other side. She's having trouble pulling it off. She says it doesn't look right. The wax is probably way too hot before she put it on there. She can't get it off. So she's like, let me get some kitchen scissors really quick. So she goes and gets some scissors from the kitchen to cut the wax off of the hair. And um, Justine panics because she doesn't want her sister to use scissors next to her clitoris. And I think we can all agree that that's okay and, and perfectly rational. So she jolts her leg. And ends up kicking her sister's hand. And it kicks her hand in such a way that it actually causes Alexia to clamp down on the scissors and cut off her own finger. This is where things get even worse. So then Justine finds the finger. She finds um, that the dog is actually licking the blood on the carpet. And so she calls 911. She says... I have this finger. What do I do with it? 911 says put it on ice. In a Ziploc bag, we'll be there soon. She doesn't find any ice. Nowhere cold to store it. The refrigerator never got turned on. So she kind of looks at it like a chicken wing for a while. And she's like, mmm. And you know that like innate desire where you just want to put things in your mouth like as a baby or as a kid or something? Well, that's exactly what happens here. So she just eats that finger just clean off the bone. Just, you know. Just like a chicken wing. I mean, she clearing the whole thing. And Alexia wakes up and is like, holy shit, I can't believe you fucking ate my finger. Like, how offended would you be? I would be irate. So they go to the hospital. She tries to throw up the finger. Doesn't work. And um, when Justine meets her dad in the parking lot when he's smoking a cigarette, he's like, well, I guess we're going to have to put the dog down because... Dogs, after they have the taste of human, like, they can never be the same. And so Justine is obviously upset. She's like, I don't know. I don't think that that's necessary, Dad. But, of course, whatever you want. So Justine takes Alexa, Alexia back to campus. She's pushing her in a wheelchair. And all of a sudden, Alexia just gets up and starts walking. And she's like, follow me. I want to show you something. So Alexia proceeds to show... Justine how um to go on this this rural road by the college and to um stimulate a car accident how to like make a car accident occur 
And then when the person wrecks their vehicle, she actually eats the person in the car. So this is a this is Alexia's way of showing Justine how she gets fresh meat to eat. And um, so she kind of is like, okay, I'm horrified by this. This is not okay. I'm not going to murder people for food. And she basically just tells Alexia, cool, I don't really mind that you eat it, but um, I didn't really like it. I just wanted to try it, but thank you. Thank you anyway. And so she has hunger pains that night. She can't sleep. She is like, it feels like something's hitting her, like under her bed sheets. I mean, she's just so, so much in pain. And um, the next day they go to a party. She goes with her sister. She gets hellaciously drunk. Alexia takes her to a morgue. And that's where the party is, which I I am so baffled by how these people live their lives. But anyway, she takes her to a party in the morgue and taunts Justine while she's drunk like a dog with the the body on one of the autopsy tables. And there's a video of it. She's horrified from the video, obviously. And um, she goes to find her sister. She fights with Alexia. In the fight, Alexia bites a piece of Justine's cheek off and, um, you know, just sisterly things. I mean, it could happen to you. Um, so (sighs) Alexia cleans Justine's cheek and they, um, basically have a little conversation about how, like, okay, Justine, you've been locking yourself in your own bedroom to keep everybody else safe. So she lets Alexia stay in her bedroom and then she actually goes to sleep in the living room with Adrian and she doesn't lock the door from the outside to keep Alexia in. So the next morning, there's a siren sound. The first years should know that their hazing is over. As Justine Justine wakes up, though, she finds that she's covered in blood. It's from Adrian's quad. She looks over. He had been stabbed in the back first to incapacitate him. And she looks across the floor at her sister who's covered in blood. And she actually took the ski pole from Adrian's side of the room, stabbed him with it and, um, had eaten his quad. So Justine comes home from school. She tells her parents about, um, you know, all the stuff that, has been going on basically. Um, not that I think anybody could help her with that. And her dad says, Hey, this is actually Alexia's fault because your mom is this way. You are this way. Your sister is this way. I'm not this way, but you will, um, you will find a person one day, a romantic partner. That's going to be okay with this. So, and that's where we leave off. Um, this movie, while heartfelt, is incredibly upsetting. <laughs> and um, it's so, like, there's so much inner turmoil. I mean, she's learning so much about herself. There's so much sexuality at play. She's in a new place for the first time. She's learning about herself for the first time. She is kind of... Um, we're watching her take that step that you make when you ultimately move from your parents' home out on your own. And it's just so powerful to watch her do this. So it just so happens that uh, she's a cannibal 
So that's that makes it worse. Like that's the hard part. But um, if you can get past that part, then hey, I say go for it. This is a great movie. Love it. Moving right along to number seven, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, 2017 release, written and directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, the man himself, starring Colin Farrell, Nicole Kidman, Barry Keegan, Rafi Cassidy, among others. I mean, there's a great cast in this film. It's 121-minute runtime. We, um, wow, this one also invokes a pretty serious reaction within me. Um, the first time I watched this, I was so nauseous by what I was seeing because of how cold the movie is. And part of that's because it takes place in a hospital, and part of that is because it is, um, I mean, the whole thing is about making a decision that one could never possibly make. So we have Dr. Stephen Murphy. He's a cardiothoracic surgeon. He meets a young man named Martin at a local diner for some lunch. They talk about hair. They talk about basically nothing. Um, And, you know, he's basically like a big brother type situation for this. Then they go off on their separate ways. Stephen goes home. He talks to his family again at home about hair. And... (laughs) Um, in the bedroom that night, Anna tells Steven she wants to bake him a lemon cake tomorrow. No one else is going to eat it but him. So she may not make it, but she still wants to bake one. And then she looks at him and she's like, so general anesthetic? And Anna pretends to be a patient under general anesthesia while Steven has sex with her. And I know it was consensual, but I still wanted to throw up during it and I don't appreciate it and I don't like it. Next day, Stephen goes to uh, to work, and Martin is there. And Stephen's like, hey, please don't come to my place of work. Like, this is an outside relationship. And Martin tells Stephen, so sorry, I just wanted to show you my new, uh, my new strap on my watch. And Stephen says, cool, thanks so much. Next time you want to come, can you just give me a call first? Because, you know, I'm busy, I'm a doctor, I'm whatever. You don't need to be wandering around a hospital. It's just so weird. So doctor comes up to Steven and is like, I have some test results to show you. And um, Steven makes up a lie to tell this other doctor about how Martin here wants to be a cardiologist when he grows up. And he just came to the hospital to see what it was all about. So daughter Kim at home, she practices some singing lessons her and her brother Bob get a talking to about chores, blah, blah, blah. Anna and Steven go to a party. Great. They have a lot of fun. And um, they leave the party early, actually, because Steven has surgery in the morning. So the next day, he does a surgery. He's walking with Martin. They go by the water. He smokes a cigarette. Martin tells Steven, thank you so much, because I don't have that many friends. And... Um, I did get a lot closer to my mom after my dad died. So we learned that Steven's mom or Steven's dad isn't in the picture. And, um, Steven says, Martin, thank you so much. I'd love it. If one day you'd come over to meet my, my family. So Martin comes over, he gets brought in. He kind of develops a romantic interest 
with Kim, the daughter, and Bob is kind of eh about him, but overall, everybody really thinks he's super polite. He shows up with flowers, as one does. That night, Anna and Steven are getting ready for bed, and Anna's like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you, I, I didn't know how long you knew Martin. And Steven admits, yeah, I've known him for a while, and Martin used to be a patient of mine. And Anna is kind of like, oh, I guess I just didn't know that. But he explains to Anna that he went to Martin's dad's funeral um, two years ago and that she didn't go because she was busy. And he then um, gets a phone call from Martin who says, I would love to have you over because my mom hasn't seen you since we were in the hospital two years ago. This all turns out to be a bad idea because he ends up going over to that house and Martin's mom is a fucking freak. And she tries to have sex with Dr. Steven, so... That obviously isn't going to work out. But Martin has this in his head that if he meets Stephen's mom, or if he meets his mom, that Stephen will fall in love and he'll be his new dad. And um, he just leaves. He's like, I'm done. This is fucking weird. No, thank you. I'm sure this violates a lot of laws and definitely a lot of ethics. Next morning at work, Martin is waiting for Steven in his office and says, yo, dude, my heart, it aches. And he starts taking off his clothes. Steven's like, please don't worry about it. Heart conditions are hereditary. So I understand if you have some concern, but you're young. And he says, okay, I understand. But like my dad had a heart condition and my dad never smoked, never drank. He ate a healthy diet and... You know, Martin's worried because he has actually taken up smoking cigarettes and hasn't really been sleeping well. So Steven does some testing on him, and he is fine. He's healthy as a horse. So at a barbecue with the uh, with another doctor's family, Steven gets a call from Martin, and Martin says, I've been calling you. I don't know where you've been. Steven, um, like, he's at this dinner, And he just does not want to tell Martin where he is because he's like, I just don't want you to show up. And um, the other doctor says, it's the weirdest thing. I saw Martin in the parking garage the other day and I said hi to him. And Steven said, well, that wouldn't be possible um, because he was at school. It was during the school day, so that'd be ridiculous. The other doctor's like, yeah, I mean, maybe I made a mistake, but I doubt it. So daughter Kim comes in the living room. She says, oh my gosh, best thing ever, uh, Martin brought me home on a motorcycle. And Steven is upset, doesn't want his kid on a motorcycle. I get it, especially without a helmet. The next morning, young son Bob tells his dad he can't get ready for school because he can't feel his legs. So they take him to the hospital, they do all the tests they can possibly think of, he gets evaluated, and... um, by a neurologist, and then he gets up and is actually able to walk partially out of the hospital after the testing is over with Anna, but then collapses anyway, and his parents tease him, like maybe he had a test at school he didn't prepare for, but he gets an MRI. Everything's normal. I mean, the neurologist is like, okay, just go home. So they go home the next morning, Anna and Steven show up to uh, their son's room to find that Martin is already there. So he actually had told Kim about what happened and tells Steven to meet him in the cafeteria 
of the hospital. So Stephen agrees to meet him, goes to meet with Martin, and um, says, you knew that this day would come. You knew it would come quickly. Now, you killed a member of my family, Stephen. You killed my dad. My dad died under your watch in this very hospital. So now you have to pick a member of your family to kill in the next few days. It could be Anna, Kim, or Bob. But if you don't pick anybody, then they will all die, and they'll all die in the same way. First, they're going to lose the use of their legs. Secondly, they're not going to eat, and they're going to refuse to eat to the point of starvation. Third, they're going to bleed from their eyes. And fourth, they will die. So we see that Bob's already one way there. Um, He's already at the not walking. And then he refuses to eat some donuts. Kim then starts to exhibit some pretty similar symptoms. She collapses during choir practice. She goes to the hospital. She ends up being in the same condition as her brother. And all along the way, Martin is watching. Martin is in the parking lot. Martin is close. Martin is always there. He's trying to talk to Kim. He's like, you know, trying to develop a romantic interest in her. So one night, instead of going home, Anna says, okay, cool. I'm going to go actually to Martin's house and I'm not going to go home because I actually want to talk to him. So Martin tells Anna that ever since Stephen killed his dad, he's been flirting with his mom and that she actually has feelings for him too. So she tells Martin, like, I'm so sorry if my husband created this out of negligence, then she doesn't understand why her kids have to pay the price. And Martin explains to her that when he was little, he was under the impression that, um, you know, only... Him and his dad used to eat spaghetti the same way, but realized that everyone eats their spaghetti the same way. And then that made him more upset when he found out that his dad was dead. And he says he doesn't know if it's exactly fair, but it was basically the best thing he could come up with. And like the spaghetti thing, I'll never understand. And that's, I, I'm assuming it's just not for me to know. Later, Anna tells Steven she wants to resign. She wants to sign the release form. She wants to have her kids at home. The hospital director can't think of anything else to do. So she um, she goes on the next morning to meet the other doctor, who the one who they went to the barbecue with, and she asks him about the surgery of Martin's dad. And he's like, I don't really remember that patient because I do the same thing every day. He's an anesthesiologist. And so he's like, I don't really remember. So she wants the file of this patient. He says he remembers putting this guy under and will tell her a few things about the case, but he wants something in return. So she's like, fine, I'll give you whatever you want. Especially since I didn't get to give it to you at the barbecue. So she gives him a hand job in the car and he tells her that Steven had actually been drinking during the surgery of Martin's dad and could be to blame and that um, anesthesiologists are never to blame for the bad outcomes of a surgery and only the surgeon is. But he does say that Steven only had two drinks that morning before and that it wasn't unusual at the time for him to do this, but only he knew. So they go home. They... They, they get their kids, you know, on in these horrible hospital beds, living room. They, they are trying to do the best they can because they don't want to, they don't want to pick somebody to die. And, um, things start to get worse. 
They continue to not eat. They continue to lose their appetite. They they start to bleed from the eyes, and then they're like, oh, shit. We really need to get this show on the road. Okay, great. Anna is the rational one. Hey, kill me. You can always remarry. You can't replace our kids, really. Or keep me around, and we can just have another kid. I'm still healthy. So he actually can't pick. He just can't. So even with, even I would just kill my spouse, but that's neither here nor there. And um, he decides that the best thing to do is to tape everybody to chairs in the living room and to spin around in a circle a bunch and then just fire a gun. And whoever it hits, it hits. And that's just how life is going to be. He tries a few different times, and then the third time he finally makes impact on somebody and actually shoots his own son. So they end the movie. Martin is still around. He's still, you know, in the same town. They encounter him frequently. It's very uncomfortable. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, great. Horrible. You can't, nobody can make these decisions, um, obviously. And I've talked about this because I have an episode on this movie as well. But this is just a nice little Charlie problem example, which is basically like, okay, if you're operating a trolley, um, it has no functioning brakes. It's coming towards a switch in the track. On one track, you have five people. And on the other track, um, there's one individual. If you activate the switch, this one person will for sure be killed. But if you do nothing, then these other five people will be killed. Which one would you pick? You know, we can only speculate merely what we would do in these types of situations, but it is a nice thought experiment. Number six, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Don't Come For Me, but we're doing the 1974 release, written and directed by Toby Hooper, starring Marilyn Burns, Paul A. Partain, Edwin Neal, Jim Cito, and Gunnar Hansen. 83-minute runtime. We love Toby Hooper in our household. We got five people, young people, college people, taking a road trip through the shitty part of Texas. What could possibly go wrong? Sally and her brother Franklin have the group stop off at a cemetery. They want to check on um, their, their grandfather's grave. And they get back in the car. They drive by a slaughterhouse. Franklin's like, let me tell you some stuff about my family history surrounding the slaughtering of animals. And this group is just so smart and so brilliant that they see a hitchhiker on the side of the road. Pick him up. What do you know? The dude also has some experience with slaughtering animals, so he takes a photo of the group. He wants some money for it. He gets angry when they don't want to pay him, so naturally he goes after Franklin. Because when people do... When you um, perform a service without, like, consent or agreement to perform that service and somebody doesn't want to pay you for it, the only natural reaction is to be upset. So I don't know what you guys have ever thought of before, but that is just how life works. So they kick him out. He smears a blood uh, symbol in blood on the side of their van on his way out. I mean, it's just kind of like when you tell a guy, like, I don't want to, I don't want to date you. And he's like, well, you're fucking ugly anyway. I'm like, okay. Um, they need gas. So they stop off at a gas station, which contrary to what you might assume about gas stations, this one has no gas. So, 
Um, the kids actually decide they're going to go out and explore an abandoned house, which is by the gas station, which was actually owned by Sally and Franklin's family. So just like all the movies from this time period, two of the kids go off with the intention of having sex, but actually discover another house close by that has generators that are gas powered. So they're like, oh shit, we hit the jackpot. They walk over, making their way. Don't find anybody immediately, but they're going to go in the house to see it. And um, when they get to this house, Kirk, the man, goes in. He tries to make a, a barter trade for the gas and finds a man that has on a skin mask, who we now know is Leatherface. And um, he gets attacked with a hammer. He dies. So in this movie, actually, just the thought of having sex will kill you. You don't actually even have to do it, which is definitely different for the time. So Miss Pam, one of our friends, goes in later looking for Kirk, and she gets grabbed and put up on some meat hooks. So she has a better view for observing Leatherface put Kirk's body through a chainsaw uh, exercise. So, I mean, it would be a shame if she didn't have a front row seat. And since Kirk and Pam are gone, somebody has to go look for them. So another guy, Jerry's like, okay, I'm going to go in the house. He finds Pam's body. It's in a deep freezer. He gets killed with a hammer too. People get offed quick in this movie. It's also a short movie. Now we have Sally and Franklin, brother, sister. So they go towards this house and um, on their way, they see Leatherface. He ambushes them and he kills Franklin with the chainsaw. He chases Sally, actually, back towards the gas station, and then Sally finds the gas station owner who comforts her for a minute, but then scolds her for being, like, reckless and dumb and for even going in the direction of that house. So the best consequence for her is to be beaten and subdued and taken back to the house, naturally. And um, so they go back there. She wakes up. She comes to... The table is full of just random people, random things. It's nasty. It's dirty. The hitchhiker's there. Um, he was, like, somehow involved in some grave robbing. And I, who the fuck knows what else. But anyway, all these people are in on this shit. And they sit down at the dinner table. Grandpa comes over because he does the best killing and uh, they try to cut off Sally's finger so that Grandpa can suck her blood. But he, like, can't hold the um, the saw. Like, he, like, can't hold things because he's so old. So she passes out because she's scared. She wakes up the next morning. The leather family, if you will, are arguing. But ultimately decide that they're going to kill her with a hammer, too. So everybody gets the hammer except for, like, two people. So she breaks free somehow. She runs down the road and she waves down a truck. She jumps in the truck bed. She's crying. She's laughing. She's riding away. Like she gets away. And um, Leatherface is pissed because he didn't kill her. And he's waving his chainsaw around in the air because he's so pissed. Because, again, rules for life. If you're upset and you have a weapon, you should wave it around. I don't make the rules. And that's how we end. And I think the interesting part about this movie is that the conditions under which the film was actually shot were also just like straight out of a bad dream. I mean, it was in Central Texas, late in the summer. 
if you've ever had the displeasure of experiencing that, it's absolutely one of the most miserable things ever. Um, it's hot, it's still, there's no wind, it's horrible, it's humid. You can't catch a break. It's relentless. And so not only were these actors like truly miserable and sweaty and smelly and disgusting, but they were also acting in a scenario where the smells and experience for the characters were horrifying. So overall, just bad experience. And a fun fact for me, I actually have been to the house where this was filmed and there is like a small little retail store inside and you can actually book an overnight stay there. So I personally would never do that, but the option is there should you choose to take advantage of that. Number five, Eraserhead, 1977 release, written and directed by David Lynch, starring Jack Nance, Charlotte Stewart, Alan, J Alan Joseph, excuse me, Gene Bates, and Judith Roberts, 89-minute runtime, and I think this will probably be the weirdest one that I have on the whole list. So young man Henry walking home, he's got some groceries, he's in a disgusting industrial area of Philadelphia, and he comes home approached by a character called the beautiful girl across the hall. So that's not just me making it up, that's her name. And she says that, um, hey, I got a phone call from your girlfriend Mary, and she wants you to come over for dinner with her and her family. So Henry's like, hmm. I don't know if I want to do all that nonsense, but has actually decided, okay, I'll go. So Henry goes to Mary's house, and he's confronted by a number of just unnerving things. <laughs> like, there's a dog in the living room that has just given birth to a litter of puppies, and it's, like, feeding time, and Mary's parents are fucking weird, and they have dinner, which consists of a salad that a nearly dead grandmother is tossing. Like, literally, there's a grandmother, and she's in the kitchen, like, behind, like, a kitchen door. This is, like, in the days where, like, kitchens were closed off or whatever. So, like, you couldn't really, like, see what was going on in there. So she's in this closed-off kitchen, and um, Mary's mom actually picks up... This is, like, straight out of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like, when Grandpa's doing the killing... This is the same thing. So Mary's mom picks up grandma's arms and puts the spoons in grandma's hands and holds them and tosses the salad like for her. I don't know why that needed to be in the movie, but it did. And um, you could maybe ask David Lynch why it needed to be there, but I'm not sure he could give you a good reason either. So they have dinner, they have the aforementioned salad, and some small chickens. So they're like a full chicken, but they're tiny chickens, like like really, really small. Maybe this is what chickens used to look like back in the day, actually, might be a good point. So Mary's dad made these chickens and they, um, they gush blood and pulsate when Henry cuts into them. Um, I didn't eat chicken after I watched this movie for like a week and a half. So it's in black and white. The movie's in black and white, but I don't really think it helps. So after dinner, Mary's mom corners Henry and tries to plant a big fat kiss on him, but he's, nope, not interested. Thank you. He refuses and he's actually informed that there is a 
She goes from kissing him to being like, oh, okay. Well, there's a baby at the hospital for you and Mary to go pick up and you have to get married. And he's like, what? I didn't even know that she was pregnant. So um, she also makes sure to note that she isn't actually sure if it's like a human or not, the baby. So Mary and Henry move into Henry's nasty ass apartment, which is literally just a bedroom with a bathroom. Like there's, it's not really an apartment. And um, they're trying to take care of the thing they call a baby, but it just cries and screams and it doesn't eat. And it makes Mary so mad. It's just relentless that she actually just packs up her shit and leaves, which... Honestly, I wish I could say that I blame her, and I don't. I just, I don't. So Henry finds out by looking at the baby after studying it for quite some time, like, damn, this thing looks sick. And um, it has, like, belabored breathing, and uh, it has sores on its face. It looked painful, and he tries his best to take care of it with a humidifier and such. And Henry soon begins to have visions of uh, the man in the planet and the lady in the radiator. Those are both their names. Those are both proper nouns. Don't come for me. The lady in the radiator sings a scary song about heaven and she stomps on falling mini versions of the baby that like fall from a stage. And then he has a small, sweet little sexual encounter with the, um, the beautiful girl across the hall. And then afterwards has more visions of the lady in the radiator again, who sings while Henry watches his own head fall off of his body to uncover that it is actually attached to something that looks like his baby's head. A random boy on the street finds Henry's fallen head after it comes from the sky and cracks open on the sidewalk, he takes it to a pencil factory, and the head is turned into erasers for pencils. Hence the name, Eraser Head. When he wakes up, Henry notices that the beautiful girl across the hall has found another man, and he gets upset because she didn't pick him. And naturally, he goes back to his room and cuts the baby's clothes off with some scissors, and we finally see that the baby has no skin. The swaddle clothing that it was wrapped in was actually the only thing that was holding its internal organs together. And they fall apart after the cloth is cut. So what can you do about that? As a result, the baby is crying out in pain. And Henry, I guess he didn't know what else to do. So he's like, well, I the only thing I can think of is I'm just going to stab the baby's organs with these scissors that I have. And he does, and as he stabs, stabby mcstab stab, little stabs, a really thick substance completely, like, it expands out of the baby's body and fills the room completely. And um, the baby gets really, really big until it also encompasses the entire room and the head of the baby is replaced by the planet that we saw at the beginning of the movie, and that is it. And yes, I know that it sounds probably worse than all the other movies because it's like a more what the fuck movie, but I have no excuse for it. And if you've seen this, this is very much just a surrealist horror. I mean, the characters kind of float. It's very dreamlike. Things move very slowly. The narrative isn't necessarily linear. There's a lot of plot holes. For example, Henry is told at the family dinner table um, 
or excuse me, after dinner that, you know, there's a baby, but he didn't even know that she was pregnant. So, and they had just like broken up not that long ago. And disturbing imagery is accepted as normal to the characters, like the dogs and um, the eating dinner and the chickens oozing and pulsing. But like to the characters, it's fine. But to us, it's scary. And there's like a constant humming in the background. It's like a white noise or like a train is in the really far distance that's approaching you, but it never actually gets there. And it kind of like overwhelms the sound in the movie. It's it's so actually so loud. Like it's so loud. Um that it completely takes over the dialogue sometimes. And if the goal was to create a nightmare, Mr. Lynch did exactly that. Um, If you guys are still with me, God bless you. So number four, American Psycho. For those of you that know me, this will come as no surprise to you, seeing as I have an American Psycho rug in my living room and a framed photo of Patrick Bateman in the scene where he's in the bathroom with the gloves on. So... Um, I'm a bit of a fan, if you will. This definitely has a cult following. So this is American Psycho 2000 release, written and directed by Mary Heron and um, Guinevere Turner, but based on the book American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis, which I highly encourage everyone to read. It's a quick read. Starring Christian Bale, Willem Dafoe, Jared Leto, Josh Lucas, Samantha Mathis, Matt Ross, Bill Sage, Chloe Savini, Kara Seymour, Justin Theroux, Reese Witherspoon. Star-studded, 101-minute runtime. We're following Patrick Bateman, 1980s investment banker, who is keeping up with the Joneses all the time. I mean, he has his Amex Platinum. Everybody else has their Amex Platinums. They throw them all on the table at the same time, and it makes a nice sound when they all clang together. The net worth at something like that, uh, at a table like that, is definitely definitely shocking. So um, anyway, he's engaged to Evelyn Williams. He lives like a pretty good life. His associates, he doesn't really like that much, but continues to hang out with them for the status. And one day... They are all talking about their beautiful business cards. And they all have a, um, a different one. They, like, I don't know. They all want to one-up each other with these different business cards. And he um, finds or sees one from one of his friends. And it's Paul Allen's business card. And he's so pissed that it's so good. And this whole movie is like his internal monologue, right? He's so pissed that this card is so good that on his way home from work, he finds a homeless man in an alley. Um, the guy has a dog. He kills the dog and I think the man. So he's, I mean, he's pretty mad. So at a Christmas party, um, <laughs> which I just, I, this has never happened to me, so I wouldn't really know how to react. But essentially, Patrick Bateman talks to Paul Allen and um, Paul actually mistakes him for somebody else and is like, hey, let's go out to dinner. This would be great. And Patrick hates the fact that Paul is able to have this incredible life and all these, you know, this nice business card, this beautiful apartment and, you know, all these incredible things. And he's so jealous that, uh, and that actually even more than all of those things, I should clarify that Paul is able to get reservations at Dorcia, which is the most exclusive restaurant that uh, doesn't exist. But to the people in, in this movie, it's up for debate. They never actually get to go there. Um, so 
they go out to this place called like Texarkana for dinner and who the fuck knows what kind of food they have. It looks horrible in there, but they have dinner. Patrick gets him drunk, takes Paul back to his apartment, turns on Huey Lewis in the news and says, man, it's hip to be square and bludgeons him to death with an ax. And um, he takes the body out, body bag, goes to Paul's apartment, leaves a message on the answering machine, you know, pretending to be him, saying, like, I went to London, I'm having a good time, whatever. So then they hire a private investigator. Here he comes. And um, Bateman is so charming, Patrick's so charming, that he, you know, he, he gets his way out of it. He's not even a suspect. So later... Patrick has two prostitutes over to his apartment. They have sex. He tortures them throughout the night um, with various things like hangers and knives and what have you. He pays them for their time the next morning. And um, later that same day, colleague Lewis reveals that he has been able to get a new business card. And... um, Patrick is so enraged by this new and improved business card that he tries to to strangle Lewis in the bathroom of this restaurant that they're in. And um, Lewis is under the impression that this was actually an act of sexual prowess and is like, oh my God, Patrick, I've been waiting for this moment. I love you so much. Like, blah, blah, blah. Weird, scary, unnerving, unsettling He doesn't murder him, obviously. So then, after some time, um, Patrick is like, okay, gotta go kill him again. And um, he takes his current secretary, who's in love with him, Miss Jean. She's beautiful. He invites her over for drinks, and then they're gonna go out on a date. And... um, he contemplates killing her, but actually just tells her to leave. He has a nail gun. It's to the back of her head. And he's like, I think you should just go. And um, all that is because he gets a message on his answering machine from his fiance Evelyn. So being that for whatever reason, he doesn't seem to believe that he can find women organically for sex. Not that there's anything wrong with prostitution. I mean, you get your money, but... Um, he well, I guess it's a it's an exercise of power. Obviously, um, he invites one of the previous prostitutes back over, and then also invites um, like an acquaintance, a female acquaintance that he knows, over, and they take drugs, they have sex. Um, Patrick kills the female acquaintance um, during an act of sex, and the prostitute runs away. While she's running away, she finds a bunch of uh, corpses of other women while she's looking for an exit to get out. And Patrick is naked, chasing her down the hallway and down the stairwell with the chainsaw. So he has on underwear and tennis shoes, which is such a look, such an incredible vibe. He drops the chainsaw on her, timing it perfectly when she's coming down a set of the stairs and it, um, it, 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 it kills her. And then he's like, well, my life is kind of not so great. So he breaks off um, 
he breaks up with his fiance Evelyn, which is kind of a funny scene because she doesn't really seem to understand that that's what's going on. And this is where things just get horribly wrong. So then he's on his way home, we think, and he finds an ATM. The ATM says, feed me stray cat. He sees a cat. He wants to kill the cat and put it in the ATM. But then a lady on the street is like, whoa, dude, please don't kill the cat. So he just kills her instead. So then there's like a giant police chase. There are other police officers killed. You know, there's fire on all fronts. There are security guards involved in like his work building. And he goes to his office. There are helicopters on the loose, like looking for him. And he calls his lawyer. And when he calls his lawyer, he's like, I have killed anywhere from 20 to 40 people. And I've eaten a few of them. And um, this whole thing has just gotten out of control. So the next day he goes back to Paul's apartment to clean it up after he killed his female acquaintance and the other girl from the threesome. And then when he gets there, it's vacant and listed for sale and there's a realtor there. So he's like, oh, okay, weird. Then he calls his assistant, Gene, because he's like, I'm literally losing my mind, and um, goes to meet some of his friends uh, at like a little nice restaurant bar that they have lunch at frequently. And all this time, Gene is looking in his desk and finds a book full of drawings and notes about, you know, things that Patrick has either done or would do or dreams about doing, um, you know, dismembering people and things of the like. She's obviously troubled by this. And so he gets to this restaurant. He sees his lawyer. He's like, hey, did you get my phone message? And his lawyer is like, what? That's so funny. That was a great joke. Thank you so much. I really needed that laugh. And Patrick's like, no, 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 no. I left that voicemail and I really did those things. And his lawyer's like, that's so weird and also not possible that you even would have thought to kill like Paul Allen because I just had dinner with Paul Allen in London. So Patrick's confused. He sits down with his friends and he has more internal monologue about, you know, confusion. Did I do these things? Did I not do these things? X, Y, Z. And he ends the film by saying that his confession meant absolutely nothing. I love this movie not for any insight or any, like, um, any lessons that it, it teaches. I do think, though, that it's so accurate for the time period of the 80s. Everybody is obsessed with their image. Everybody is, you know, so vain to the point where they go to extreme lengths to have, you know, all these treatments done. And I mean, for fuck's sake, like Patrick has a, he gets a tanning bed in his own fucking apartment. I mean, I can't even fit a tanning bed in my apartment, but he's basically just like an alien. You know, he's he's not from this world. He doesn't think clearly. He constantly, because he has no empathy, right? He's just a shell of a person, which 
is a nice um, little commentary on like what people who are in this class or this social class or wealth class, what how people perceive them. They perceive them as heartless, empty, vain, you know, nothing much to offer. And um, for that reason, I, I think this movie is really smart. But, like, he doesn't have empathy on his own, doesn't have feelings on his own. So, like, you'll see in the movie when he is getting ready to have sex, he watches porn before. And when he's working out, he watches the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like, he, like, doesn't, he's not able to come up with these feelings organically, which I think is really um, an interesting way to view that. Number three, Hereditary. 2018 release written and directed by Ari Aster, starring Tony Collette, Alex Wolf, Millie Shapiro, and Dowd. Gabriel Byrne. I just, there's nothing that you can say to make me not love this movie. 127 minute runtime. It's a pretty long one, but I definitely think it's worth the sit down. We open funeral for um, Tony Collette's mother, and her name is Annie in the film. And she sees a bunch of people there. She doesn't recognize any of them. Our grandmother, Matriarch, though, who just died, has been up to some shady shit. And Annie and her family slowly start to unravel throughout the film. We got death at the very beginning. And then we have death again about 45 minutes in when um, brother Peter takes his sister Charlie, younger sister Charlie, out to a party with him. And at the party, Peter sneaks off. He's going to smoke some weed. He's going to hang out with his crush. And then he leaves Charlie, though, to just, like, fend for herself and eat a piece of birthday cake in the kitchen at the party. So she does. She eats a piece of cake. I don't blame her. I would have, too. Shortly thereafter, though, she comes looking for Alex, and she's like, dude, I can't breathe. I need help. She has a nut allergy, and the cake that she ate very much had nuts in it. So Charlie was having an allergic reaction and Alex panics, or excuse me, Peter panics and he takes her out of the house to the car. He speeds home. He's panicking the whole time, obviously reacting um, the way that you should, although I don't know why she didn't have an EpiPen. So into the drive, Charlie is so desperate for air that she opens the window and she actually puts her head out of the car and she is then decapitated by a telephone pole. So imagine, like, losing your mom and then your daughter. Yeah. Heavy movie. Actually, this is the only movie I've ever had to turn off and take a break. Like, I actually saw this scene, had to take a break, go do something else, and then come back to finish it because of how horrific this scene is. So Peter drives home and leaves his sister's head on the road and leaves her headless body in the car for Annie to find the next morning. So since Annie can't seem to catch a fucking break, she goes to a support group for grief, even though she's basically done everything to not go to that because she thinks it's cheesy. And she meets a woman named Joan. So Joan invites Annie over and tells her about this little nifty thing. Maybe you've heard of it. Um, It's called a seance. And she uses this technique to talk to her late grandson and shows Annie how it works. So Annie goes home, wakes up her husband and son in the middle of the night, and she's like, please take part in this seance with me. I can talk to Charlie. This is great. 
So since we all know that there are actual ritualistic means by which to perform a seance and to do so safely, Annie doesn't really seem to understand that at all. So Peter comes, you know, he he comes downstairs to do it, but he's obviously not having a good time. He's freaked out. Steve, the the husband, is freaked out. Everybody's mad at Annie because they're like, why the fuck do you feel the need to do this? Peter starts to, um, he gets harassed. He actually gets harassed by a demonic spirit. And this is when shit gets real, real. So Annie goes up to the attic and finds a photo album that shows that her mom was the queen of a cult. And what do you know? Joan is in the photos. So yeah, Joan's in the photos. She's there. They were all part of a cult in which the goal was to provide king, demonic king payment, a male bodily host. So then shortly thereafter, also in the attic, Annie finds her mom's dead body. So that's cool. Somebody dug it out of the ground and brought it to her house. Such a nice gesture, honestly. Um, I don't know how she could be upset. So, And she finds this body with some occultist symbols around it some sigils, some things to give it power. And at school, Joan actively tries to get rid of um, Peter's bodily spirit to make room for King Payman's spirit in his body. And he comes home from school early with a broken nose because during this, um, you know, practice from Joan, thank God she was there, right? He is repeatedly having his face slammed into his desk over and over and over again. So Annie decides, okay, this whole thing is too much. I just want to kill myself. I don't want this to be over. I want this just to be over for me. And I want you guys to live a happy life. And um, instead, though, King Payman actually possesses her body. And she chases her son, Peter, around the house, you know, harassing him, following him around, scaring him while her husband, Steve's body is burning in the living room. And Peter goes to the treehouse, eventually finds his sister's head there and some other corpses and a bunch of naked cult members that begin to worship him. He is crowned the king of the coven. Overall, um, this is just a movie about grief, and I think that it's an interesting mechanism by which to tell that story, but if I told you that this movie didn't scare the fuck out of me, I would be lying. I've probably seen it six times, and every time I watch it, it doesn't get any easier to watch. You know, the storytelling device of the spirituality of the grandmother and the matriarch of the family being the grandmother and the family is just imploding from the inside. I mean, Annie, Tony Collette's character just cannot fight off all of these things. She just can't, um, you know, her mom is on the one end trying to offer up her grandkids as, as bodily hosts. And, um, then, you know, her son is responsible for the death of her daughter. And it's just like, she just can't catch a fucking break. And it's, this whole family is not as strong as a unit, you know, against the forces that are working against them. And it's just an interesting way to tell that story. 
Number two. We're getting really close, guys. A Clockwork Orange. 1971 release written and directed by Stanley Kubrick. 136-minute runtime starring Malcolm McDowell, Patrick McGee, Adrian Corey, and Miriam Carlin. This is also a hard one to watch, but it's so worth it. In the dystopian future version of Britain, we have Alex and his gang of misfit toys, like his gang of degenerates, his gang of fuck-ups. You understand. And they're serially, like, looking for trouble. So they go to this place called a milk bar, and they drink this milk, and it's, I don't know, filled with some sort of acid or other drug. That causes them to become intoxicated and and engage in some violent actions. So one night, they all go out to this guy Frank's house. Frank is a writer. He lives in the country. When they get there, they beat Frank so excessively that he actually becomes, like, permanently disabled. And rape his wife in front of him while singing, singing in the rain. And... Alex is apparently in high school while all this is happening because there's an officer who is always on his case and he's like, dude, you're not at school and you need to knock this shit off. We're on to you. So Alex being the arrogant piece of shit he is, um, doesn't listen to his gang members when they start to tell him like, hey man, we really want to start doing some things that um, actually result in like some money. So like maybe we could do some thefts, some like good yield theft to like make some money. We can redistribute some wealth. And Alex is like, dude, fuck that idea. I don't want to do that. He beats up his own friends. I'm like, who wants a leader like this? So later that night, they all go out to a wealthy home. It's referred to as the cat lady's home. And you'll find out why they have a bunch of cat shit in the house. Alex goes in. Everybody else waits outside. Alex beats the owner of the home, the woman, to death with a penis sculpture. And um, the police come. Alex gets caught up with the police over this stunt and gets charged with murder. So he serves a prison sentence. And shortly into his sentence, Alex decides um, to take part in an experimental aversion therapy program, which is designed to help rehabilitate criminals. And uh, this is the, this is where it gets hard. So during these sessions, Alex is like basically strapped to a chair and he has a straight jacket on and his eyes are being like restricted from moving. Like they're like permanently open with a clamp and it doesn't allow him to like blink or like, you know, close his eyes at all. And he gets injected with a drug, whatever it is. I'm assuming it's some type of paralytic maybe. And this is all while a film is played in front of him that shows acts of violence and sex. And it has an overture from Beethoven and Beethoven is his favorite composer. So he becomes over time nauseated by hearing this music because it's associated with the acts that are being performed on the, the screen. So to prove that this experimental treatment worked, um, some elected officials gather and they basically put Alex on a stage with a naked woman who propositions him for sex and a man that attacks him. 
He's not able to fight back against the man that attacks him, and he becomes nauseous at the thought of having sex with the woman and is, like, on the floor, keeling over. He's nauseous. Like, he wants to throw up. So they're like, wait, awesome. It worked. This is perfect. So he gets released from prison kind of early, and he comes home to find that the police have sold all of his shit to pay the families of his victims, and um, his parents said... This is a whole lot of fuck that. We don't want you in our house. So they rented out his childhood bedroom. He's so distraught that he walks around after this discovery and finds a man that he once assaulted. And this man and his friends beat up Alex because he can't fight back anymore. And police break up the encounter, but we learn that the two police officers that uh, come to break it up are actually two of Alex's former gang member friends. And they're so disgusted with him that they take him out to the countryside. They beat him senselessly. Not that he doesn't deserve it. And Alex manages to crawl his way to a doorstep and collapses. And when he comes to, he's actually back inside the house of Frank who's now in a wheelchair because of, you know, he fucked, like, he hit him and beat him so senselessly before that he ended up in one, which is just horrible. And at first, Frank doesn't actually recognize Alex from the attack, but he does know who Alex is because there's a bunch of newspaper coverage about him, about the experiment he was in. And so Frank wants to get Alex to work with him as like a political motive, you know, um, to either like work with him or, or provide proof against like these types of treatments. And so Alex takes a bath in Frank's house to clean up after dinner and uh, he starts to sing, singing in the rain, which prompts Frank to, you know, it like jogs his memory. And Frank is like, oh, this is the same motherfucker. So they drug him and lock Alex in a bedroom upstairs while playing Beethoven because they read in the newspaper that, you know, they made him listen to Beethoven. So they play Beethoven. Alex wants the music to stop so badly that he tries to kill himself by jumping out of the window of the upstairs bedroom. And obviously, unless you're like a considerable number of stories up, that's just not gonna work so it, it didn't work and he wakes up in the hospital and he's like being propositioned by a different elected official to work with him so that's how that ends the thing i think is most important about this movie is the way that it explores um kind of i don't want to say like if the the punishment fits the crime but more so that like, this aversion therapy that this guy goes through is pretty intense. It's pretty horrible. It's pretty awful. Like, I can think we... I would think we could all agree that we wouldn't want to have any part of, of that. Um, even though his actions are so egregiously horrible. And it just kind of explores the morality of that. So it's like, yes, I mean, he did all these horrible things. Is this the punishment that he deserves? That's what we're really looking at. Now, moving on to number one. This is really interesting because I know this is the moment we've been waiting for for like two months. And I love that you guys have stuck it out with me. Now, the caveat I have is that it was so impossible to choose just one that I actually had to do a tie. So 
I know that that is kind of disheartening, but it was truly like, <laughs> I really just could not pick. So we have a tie. The, the tie is between the original Hellraiser and Persona. So I'll talk about Persona first. Persona is a 1966 release written and directed by Ingmar Bergman, starring B.B. Anderson and Liv Ullman. It has an 84-minute runtime. I actually am privileged enough to own the um, 100th anniversary, 100th uh, birthday, excuse me, collection from the Criterion collection of um, Ingmar Bergman's movies, and I'm thrilled for that. So hopefully if you haven't heard of this one or haven't seen this one, you will take the time to really um, to watch it. It's, it's wonderful. So Elizabeth is an actress that has stopped speaking pretty much out of nowhere, like seemingly no reason. And Alma, a nurse, has been assigned to take care of Elizabeth by a doctor in the hospital. And this is really annoying to like everybody involved because the doctors have reached the conclusion that her newfound muteness is not the result of a physical or mental illness, but rather that she just is basically just seeing how long she can go without talking at this point. So it's just like a willpower act. Elizabeth does make noise. She just doesn't speak. So we find this out while she's watching TV in her hospital bed. She's incredibly troubled by footage of a man lighting himself on fire during a protest of the Vietnam War. And Alma reads Elizabeth a letter from her husband that includes a photo of her son. And she cries when she sees the photo of her son. She tears the picture in half. Obviously, she misses her child. And the doctors seem to think that maybe she'll recover better and faster in a remote cottage um, by the water, by the sea. And they send Alma up there with her. So since Elizabeth doesn't talk still, Alma takes this as an opportunity to make her listen while she talks about her own life and tells stories about, you know, various things. Like she tells her a story about how when she was with her newly engaged fiance once, she went down to the beach when he went like grocery shopping and she had an orgy with a nude woman that was uh, sunbathing there and two other men and um, became pregnant. And um, she later had an abortion from that. So she's just telling all this information to Elizabeth. No one's ever really taken the time to listen to her before. So one afternoon, Alma goes to town to mail some letters and she sees that there's actually a letter that Elizabeth wrote that isn't sealed which is kind of weird. I don't know why you would want to, um, why you wouldn't seal it, but she's, it isn't sealed and she wants to read it. So she opens it. She starts to read it. The contents of the letter itself describe how she is studying Alma, like in an observational way and discusses the story of the abortion. So obviously like Alma is pissed. She's like, what the fuck? You can't talk, but you can write this shit down. Like that's not fair. So, she goes back to the house. She scolds Elizabeth and threatens to throw a pot of boiling water on her, which is like causes Elizabeth to speak for the first time, like speak and like be, we're certain that she spoke. And she basically is like, no, no, no. Like, please don't throw the water on me, obviously. Um, 
One night, Elizabeth's estranged husband, like he just out of nowhere, shows up at this house. No idea how he got there. And he mistakenly believes that Alma is Elizabeth. Like they look identical. And uh, proceeds to have sex with her. Alma later interrogates Elizabeth about why she tore up the photo of her son and tells Elizabeth Elizabeth's own story. Like she's telling Elizabeth Elizabeth's story about what she wanted out of this life. And um, she says, well, you wanted a child. Like you wanted to become pregnant. The only thing you didn't have in this world was a child, so you wanted to get pregnant so you could have one, and then after you got pregnant, you got cold feet, and you tried to self-induce an abortion, and that failed, and now you have a son that you hate and you resent, and Alma actively has to make herself believe that she is not Elizabeth. Like, the, the identities of the two women are so interconnected at this point, And this is after she spends the entire movie being confused about her own identity. And the movie ends with Elizabeth saying the word nothing and showing camera crews filming the cottage like they're on a movie set. And I know that sounds kind of confusing, but I have to encourage you all to watch it. It's so beautiful. It's stunning. It's in black and white and there's just nothing like it. It's so smart, so talented. Both of these women are incredible Um, and that being said, this movie is like a little confusing. So, um, it explores the concept of like duality and identity. Um, I don't want to blow anything for anybody, but Elizabeth and Alma are the same person. They're just two versions of the same person, which further exploits the concept of duality in this movie. And looking to some psychology, Carl Jung, psychologist, had his very own theory of persona, right, which describes, um, quote, an external identity separate from the soul or the Alma, which is the name of the nurse. And um, Dr. Jung believed that in order to protect yourself people often project publicly like a different image of themselves that they come to identify with. Um, so that's why Elizabeth and Alma look so similar. They, they talk about things together. Always one talks a lot. One doesn't like, it's very much like when one is happening, the other isn't when the other isn't the other is it's phenomenal, but moving to a a more well-known movie. Um, (laughs) tie for number one is is hellraiser 1987 written and directed by clive barker 93 minute runtime based on clive barker's own book the hellbound heart starring andrew robinson claire higgins ashley lawrence and our film centers around another man named frank if you didn't get enough frank from clockwork orange um who is a relatively self-aware hedonist who is constantly on the hunt for pleasure like he's always looking to explore and he purchases a puzzle box on a vacation that is said to provide just that it's said to provide pleasure he's he's on the hunt he wants it so when he solves the puzzle box he is torn apart torn to pieces by hooks and chains and when frank's brother larry later moves into the same house 
Larry focuses all of his attention on repairing the relationship between himself and his wife, Julia. Julia had been having an affair with Frank before her marriage to Larry. So that's kind of shitty. And when Larry um, soon cuts his hand while moving furniture around the attic, his blood drop from his hand lands on the floor. And this results in Brother Frank being resurrected as a skinless human. Like, imagine a human being with no skin. And Julia, still, like, incredibly infatuated and in love and obsessed with Frank, finds that he's in the attic, and she agrees to help him by luring men into the home. So she'll, like, you know, meet men at bars or, like, you know, invite them back for sex and and killing them, which somehow helps to restore Frank's original human body, like, to get his skin back. So Julia's daughter, Christy, finds the puzzle box and she solves it out of like pure curiosity after she finds Frank in the attic. And when she does, the Cenobites appear, which is where we get um, our wonderful King Pinhead. And they want to take Christy to their realm, but she is like, I don't know, but I have Frank. So she offers up Frank as an alternative and that is sufficient for the Cenobites. They're good with that. So Frank eventually takes the life of his own brother, Larry, and starts to wear his skin as like a shitty disguise. But the Cenobites, they're not buying what he's selling at all. And they, um, they uncover, obviously, that that is Frank under all that skin. So Frank tries to kill Christy, but ends up stabbing Julia instead and drains her completely of her life, no remorse, Frank gets killed again after all that effort by the Cenobites and Christy bans the Cenobites back to their realm. I know that it sounds odd. Um, I can understand that, certainly. I think that this movie is just wonderful in every single way. There's nothing that can take away how much I love this film, particularly because of the exploration of different types of sexual pleasure um clive barker himself um was you know very much in tune in touch with the lgbtq community was very much looking forward um to showcasing like if you think that this community is in the kink community is out and in your face let me show you some out and in your face right and i'll make it a mainstream film that everyone can see and um while I like the act of vengeance, I also just appreciate that this is the only film of its kind. Like, there's just nothing in the world like it. And for that, it holds such a close appreciation to my heart. So that is my top 10. I hope that if you made it this far, you can understand why I made the choices that I did. And I hope that maybe you even agree with some of them. And I thank you so much for sticking along with me on this and for, um, you know, your constant support and, and, and listenership. I can't tell you how much it means to me. So thank you so much for listening. We'll be back to regularly scheduled programming coming soon. But um, this is something I always wanted to do, and I'm glad I had the opportunity to do it. So Thank you so much. If you feel so inclined, please leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. 
Um, if you also feel so inclined, you can email me at finalgirlon6 at gmail.com. That's finalgirlon6, the number six, at gmail.com with any suggestions. If you have any suggestions in particular for upcoming movies you'd like to hear about or like to hear a review about, please let me know. And if nothing else, until next time, I am your very own final girl. Bye.